Hi, I'm Audrey and I'm with my co-host Henry and you're listening to the Footnotes of Plato. In this episode, I'm going to be talking about the origins of liberalism and also the social contract. So this is foundationally a philosophy podcast, but I also think it's really important to include political thinkers because they are philosophers in their own right. This increase in political thought coincides with the Enlightenment. And the fundamental principle of the Enlightenment was that we have the ability to comprehend and even control the universe through our investigation. And that includes both political investigation and philosophical investigation. I think it's really important to talk about liberalism today as these thoughts that I'm going to outline influence the French and American revolutions and increased the, the sense of individuality in our, in our society, outlining their freedoms such as life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Hobbes is often considered a conservatist thinker, but he's also quite influential in liberalism. So he wrote Leviathan in 1651, and he is often credited as the inventor of the first form of the social contract, which is something that we're going to talk about a lot. This episode is the origins of liberalism, but it's basically the origins of the social contract. (laughs) He believes that all individuals are selfish in the state of nature, and the state of nature is a basically a thought experiment more than anything else about how would humans and societies and people act when we don't have a state, when we don't have a sovereign power, when we don't have that kind of influence in our lives. So he believes that we're rational. So we will end up surrendering our natural lights to a sovereign body. This is because the state of nature, according to him, and this is a quote, is solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and sure and so basically in this state of nature you are completely free and what happens is when we are introduced to a state when we are brought into a state what we are doing is giving up some of that freedom in order to gain protection which is kind of his basic principle like that is why you will enter into a state into a contract is to um retain um your safety and be safe and so you'll give up your freedom exactly um in leviathan he describes the social contract as the mutual transferring of right so it's, it's about the rights that you have and he believes that people give up a certain amount of their rights that they used to have in the state of nature so they can be safe under a sovereign power now, I remember having a very long discussion about with you about how Hobbes is quite wrong here um, <laughs> about this, the social contract and more, more importantly, the state of nature and why it can't be solitary, poor, nasty, brutal and short if we are actually rational human beings. Yeah. So, but also just if we are v- variable human beings, that's a weird word, but like if we we as human beings are different from one another um and these differences include your sex and also like how able-bodied you are and i think these all have an impact on um us as a society i think one of the assumptions placed forward in um hobbes's leviathan which i strongly disagree with 
is this kind of idea that everyone is biologically equal or even this assumption that I, I would go so far as to say that everyone is an able-bodied man. Um, and he does bring in this idea of, however, because okay, the reason why it's this brutish, short, nasty life is because he thinks that if someone gets in your way, you're just going to kill them. You are not able to rest in this state of nature. You are in a constant state of fear and anxiety and worry that someone will just come up behind you and stab you in the back, basically. And because he does say that even the weakest people will still have the power to kill the strongest. However, I don't think this is necessarily how society works. And I think that um, in order to have a functioning society, and I think it is possible to have a functioning society without a state, um, which is essentially the state of nature, because... I think community can cre be created without the state because there are, um, because essentially the family exists. And I think that is one thing that, in my opinion, he really ignores. Exactly. Um, so that's basically where Locke starts off. I was thinking about Hobbes in a state of nature. And I think that to use Kantian terms, to be that kind of horrible and disgusting despicable animalistic human being is contradictory to the law of nature it doesn't make sense we wouldn't want everyone to be nasty and brutish and um horrible because that means that they'll be nasty and brutish and horrible to us and that will affect us so that's exactly. not very rational according to kant so Locke takes that and goes well yes I do disagree with um, the divine right of rulers in Europe. And I, I do want there to be a change, but I don't think that human nature is this disgusting and bad. And he takes a very optimistic approach to human nature. Yeah. And I think, I think it's important to take an optimistic approach to human nature, because also I think you also have to remember that at some point in time in civilization, we have lived in essentially a state of nature, a state, a stateless society, which is what it is. Um, if, as Hobbes described, it would be a society where we are killing people because we can, and because we have no um, mo moral values that we abide by, then then that just seems like um, we wouldn't have survived the Stone Age. We wouldn't have evolved to be able to get to the stage where we have a state. Does that make sense? Yeah, that definitely makes sense. And that's why I feel like it, it, it just, it's a rational assumption to make that we would be nice to each other if we didn't have a state. Because then how would we get to a point that we make a, a such widespread consensus to have a state. Now, exactly. Hobbes would say we had such widespread consensus because how bad life was. We, everyone was in such turmoil that we ended up creating a state to protect all of us. And in doing so, we sacrificed a lot of our rights. But then Locke goes, well, why would we allow ourselves to be in turmoil in ourselves? Like, why would we do that to ourselves? 
Exactly. And I think you'd still have loads of communities and things. And I think community comes first and it's a bunch of communities coming together and saying, um, hey, maybe we'd actually work better if we came together and then we're going to put this one one or many leaders at the top um, and create and a back, government and a state. And to go back to your um, evolutionary kind of point of view, mm. we were hunter-gatherers and then we were hunter-gatherer communities and then we were hunter-gatherer farming communities then we were farming communities and then we had a state that is literally what happened when we examine history exactly but this argument is the distinction between liberalism and conservatism conservatives have a quite pessimistic view of human nature when liberalists like to think that we would naturally act in a good way so Locke believes that when we form that sovereign power, it's not a necessity, but it's rather a system to increase efficiency in resolving disputes between people that we wouldn't be able to do without the state of nature. And most importantly, this is his most important thing. It's about property. It's about protection of property. So we wouldn't surrender our natural rights and under Hobbes' system, we wouldn't have things such as the right to not be coerced or the right to be not um, lied to. But under a good state of nature, we did actually have those rights and we would fight to retain those rights. And that's another founding principle of Locke, two treaties of government. We need a trusting state. We need a trust between the people and the state. That involves talking about also the consequences of what each of the described states of nature lead to and I think they come up with very very different consequences so in Hobbes view he arrives at the idea that there should be a singular ruler a king um, in in charge a single sovereign and that sovereign we will resign all of our power to that sovereign or not all of our power but most of our power because that is how we stay safe and that is how we don't all kill each other. This sovereign then can do essentially whatever they want. They can create enormous taxes and then they can give out no benefits. They can decide to do that if that is what they think the best option is. And we as the people who have agreed to the social construct cannot then argue against him. And that leads to a really important um, point of view in Locke's perspective is that there needs to be a revolutionary potential. If the state does not do what we want them to do, we have the right to rebel. And we also have the right to take away that trust. We gave the state the trust um, to control our lives to some extent. And if they break that boundary and they take their mandate too far, then we can take that trust away. And that's a really important aspect of Locke's thinking. Exactly. And I think think it's, I mean, so... Hobbes invites us to imagine a very kind of authoritarian society. I think the problem with that is he goes far, as far as to say you should only rebel against the sovereign if if you are no longer protected under that state. Bear in mind, the only right you have to be protected is the right to life. Exactly. You do not have any other rights, and if the sovereign chooses to take away your rights, they can take away your rights. It's a really good example of how Locke's writing is super important, even in today's standards. 
the Federalist Papers were written by James Madison and Alexander Hamilton during the creation of the USA as we know it. And Federalist Paper 51, published in 1788, defined the system of checks and balances between the legislature, um, executive and judiciary, which we now know as the Supreme Court, the President and Congress. Locke writes that if the government fails its duty to protect its citizens, it's ultimately only a judiciary power, and judiciary basically means trust. It only works, its power comes from trust. And he also says that the good of the people is the supreme law. So the government has to work in the interest of the people and the people alone. In Latin, that is salus populi suprema lex esto and i'm pretty sure that i've just made all classicists (laughs) die and turn in their graves um and when you look at hobbes that won't happen the the supreme power doesn't need to help the people they don't need to act in the good of the people and as long as they say they're acting in the good of the people as well like i think that's also an important point the sovereign can make any decision and determine that it's acting for the good of the people when actually I think those rules are very loose and since you can't combat him you can't say no you're wrong you can't rebel exactly and that's because the supreme leader is no longer dependent on the people James Madison wrote in Federalist Paper 51 a dependence on the people is no doubt the primary control of the government so the government has to be directly dependent on the people for its power its mandate And in a Hobbesian society, that may not happen. So under all of these different kinds of political thought, liberalism, conservatism, socialism, it's all based upon human nature. It's it's like a a Victoria sponge where human nature is the base, the, the bottom sponge. Everything else is just put on top. So Locke describes economic liberalism, which is basically capitalism. And when you examine human nature, it makes sense why liberalism or classical liberalism would favour a system of um, capitalism. This is because it goes straight back to the state of nature, where humans are selfish, but rational. So we would work together. There will be a free laissez-faire economy because we want cooperation, respect and consensus, because those things would help society as a whole if different industries work together to produce the best thing in, for the good of the people, then we'll have the, good, the best thing for the good of the people. Um, Adam Smith wrote um, The Wealth of Nations in 1773, which also talks about the invisible hands of the economy. And this is something that I don't really understand. I'm not an economic, economist. Yes. <laughs> economist, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, but he believes that wealth would trickle down and that would be promoted globally. So that's why it's called the wealth of the nations, plural, because we would, as a global economy, want to promote progress in everyone. Yeah. This reflects the three major aspects of the centre of liberalist thought. It involves private property, focus on individualistic desires, and ultimately an optimistic belief in progress. And like, we definitely see that later on in liberalism, this idea will be challenged. And also, I think we challenge it, especially today as a society, the 
trickle-down effect is often a largely described by a lot of people and especially conservatives as the what will happen and I think it's actually now been pretty much disproven to work I think I mean it's an idea that's based on the idea that humans are selfish and it also makes the assumption that people who own the means of production will pay the workers how much they should earn and like reimburse them for their labor and to the correct amount of the labor and i think we can see that that isn't done because it's taken on the because humans are selfish if we take that original assumption and i think that's just kind of a a a flaw in the theory that means that there end up being a huge amount uh, or sorry a very small amount of people an incredibly tiny amount of people that gain so much incredible wealth like a huge amount of wealth and i think these people that are able to accumulate that much wealth is an example of where capitalism fails us and that's not necessarily profiting society in the same way it should and that's that's my opinion it's a good one i think <laughs> humans are selfish and rational so they will yeah. rationally act in a way that they 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 benefit themselves exactly. so when we look at if and when low income countries have investment we can see it in the rose tinted glasses of investment but most of the time it's exploitation and basing a society on some on this idea that humans are selfish is really actually um creating a individualistic society as we've mentioned before which invites people to be selfish and it's it's kind of this endless cycle in my opinion of we we live in a world where um people are selfish where this assumption that there is an assumption that people are selfish so societies created are created on the assumption that people are selfish and therefore they invite you to be more selfish and more individualistic and that's how you get praise that's how you get money um yeah that's something that i'll probably mention in a midweek episode at some point the meritocracy (laughs) how everyone just weighed on their merits and if you're poor then you deserve that because you haven't worked hard enough the myth of meritocracy Um, (laughs) i i'm also an econ student as well as a philosophy student and um we recently learned about the um Uh, about income inequality and income equality and inequality and it's it's extremely apparent after very very little study um that it's unfair and that the way wealth and income is distributed and also just the way that poverty works means that a meritocracy cannot exist exactly that that that's a really important point to make on paper, classical liberalism protects us from a tyrannical state. It means that the state's always working in the good of the people. But when we examine the USA today, most of the time it's not looking after um, the the most neediest people. It's looking after the massive corporations that can lobby it for millions, if not billions. It's a brilliant concept on paper. And sometimes I do think that people are selfish if you look around <laughs> us. 
but we shouldn't have a system that promotes selfishness and that's my biggest issue yeah and i i think i agree with that (laughs) whoa audrey you got a bit heated there about capitalism (laughs) (laughs) i guess i did it's one of my many pet peeves you're probably gonna rant about it for 20 minutes in a midweek episode at some point honestly i might it's very messed up i hope you've learned a lot about liberalism I hope you have enjoyed this week's episode and we can't wait to see you next week.